1932, uh, a Prussian general and military strategist named Karl von Clausewitz published a book. It was actually published after he died. It's called On War. And uh, for over 100 years, it was the standard military textbook that taught the art of warfare. And Clausewitz is a, a big deal, learned from Napoleon's conquest of Europe. They taught it at West Point, um, and huge deal. And one of the terms that gets attributed to him from his book is this term called the fog of war. Clausewitz says that up to two-thirds of a commander's decisions made on the battlefield are shrouded in uncertainty. They don't know what they're doing. They don't have complete information, and so they have to just act. That's the fog of war. And though I've never fought in war, I know what he's talking about, and you do too. You know the decision paralysis that you get to when you don't know everything you wish you knew about the decision that was right before you. Should I take the promotion? Should I go back to school? Should we buy the new car, make do with the one we've got? Should we send our kids to school? Should we wear a mask when we go out in public? Should we get vaccinated? You wish you had all the information so you could make the perfect decision, but life isn't like that. Sometimes you just have to act. But then there are some times when decisions are crystal clear, and, and this even happens in war. Uh, September 11th, 2001. Terrible tragedy and evil. Lots of uncertain information, but the course of action was obvious. Got to do something. Just like after Pearl Harbor was attacked, America enters into World War II, our, our country went to war. And in 1314, that's the year 1314, Robert the Bruce, king of Scots, faced another decision like that. Uh, king of England, Edward, had invaded Scotland, trying to bring it back under his control. And his army was four times as large as the Scottish army. So here's Robert the Bruce trying to decide what he's going to do. Should he fight or not? And supposedly he gave one of these stirring pre-battle speeches. Or he spoke to his men and it encouraged them. And they did fight. And they won in the battle of Bannonbrook. And I think that's it. Ban Bannockburn. Battle of Bannockburn, secured basically 400 years of Scottish independence. And Robert Burns, the Scottish poem, I'm getting, I'm getting to this point, Scottish poet Robert Burns created a stylized speech that Robert the Bruce must have said to offer to his men clear options. What's it going to be, boys? And this is how he put it in his poem. Who will be a traitor knave? Who will fill a coward's grave? Whoso base says be a slave, let him turn and flee. But who for Scotland's king and law, freedom's sword will strongly draw, free man stand or free man fall, let him follow me. Let him follow me. You know, I don't know if Robert the Bruce said that, but man, if I had have been there, and he had have, I would have followed him anywhere. Let him follow me. Doesn't matter the odds. A clear picture like that, do I want to live under the oppression of a foreign tyrant, or do I want to die man? Hey, no questions asked. Fog of war, whatever. The course is clear. I'm going to fight. And that's what they did. Even if it meant death, those men went to war and fought. This morning, we hear another king use those same words. And I just wondered if you have the same response to him as I have to Robert the Bruce. Follow me. 
follow me. Jesus' words. He says it. Follow me. Will you follow him? Wherever he goes, whatever the cost, will you follow him? That's what we're going to see this morning. But at this point in Mark's gospel, he's really focused our attention on Jesus' identity as the Messiah, the Son of God, the King. And after last week, we, we heard the heart of Jesus' message. The time's fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. But at this point, we are astute Bible readers, and so we're on the edge of our seat waiting for what comes next. And we almost expect some grand event to occur where Jesus busts onto the scene and into public consciousness. Maybe a, a great battle. Here's the Son of God, and here's his angel armies. The kingdom has come. Here he is. Uh, here's the king, ready to set up his throne. Maybe it's a political movement that we're expecting. But whatever it is, by the time we get to verse 16, uh, our expectations are totally dashed. Because instead of seeing Jesus make some grand entrance, he's walking along a lake shore, and he calls four fishermen to follow him. These are Jesus' first disciples, the first four Three of them become the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And so we're sort of familiar with this passage. We know the whole fishers of men thing. And I don't know, I think as I was preparing it this week, I really struggled to get myself into the shoes of the person who was reading this for the first time. But it's not quite what you expect. I mean, according to Mark, Jesus is establishing a kingdom, but then he just goes around calling these random, ordinary guys out halfway into the lake, casting a cast net to follow him. Like, this is not the kingdom I signed up for. I'd rather die in battle than expect this. But this is exactly the way Mark said Jesus established his kingdom. In fact, the rest of the gospel is just sort of this sort of scene playing out over and over and over again. Ordinary people getting sucked into Jesus' orbit and giving everything up to follow him. And because of that, I really just want to impress on you, the Spirit of the Lord is here this morning, so evident to me. Hear his voice. Hear him call and follow. So, the first thing I want you to see this morning is that Jesus calls us to follow him. And, and that's clearly the object of Mark's passage. He gives us not one, two instances where Jesus walks up randomly, it seems, to two people and calls them to follow him. First, he comes to Simon and Andrew, brothers. Uh, they're in the middle of casting a net, and he says, follow me. Then he comes to James and John. They're in the boat, mending their nets or preparing their nets, folding them over, getting ready to take them out that night. And he says, follow me. And both of them do. And I think this is where we run into a hiccup. Because you and I are totally familiar with this passage. You've been around the Bible a lot. You've heard this story maybe once or twice. And, and it, it doesn't have the same shock factor as it might have had for the first people. Uh, Jesus does something that's totally out of the ordinary for the first century. It's not like back then, you know, random itinerant preachers just went around calling people to leave their families and livelihoods and follow them wherever they go. That's unusual. It, it didn't make a lot of sense. In fact, the closest parallel incidents you might have would be the Jewish rabbis who called around themselves groups of disciples. But the major difference is this. The rabbis might have had a group of men who were learning from them, but almost every one of the men would have sought the rabbi out because they subscribed to their particular interpretation 
the law. But Mark says when King Jesus got ready for disciples, he didn't put out a classified ad saying, hey, uh, itinerant teacher now looking for followers, please call this number to apply. No, he went to them authoritatively and sovereignly said, follow me. And they left. That's who Jesus is. That's what Jesus does. He initiated the relationship. And rather than teach them some sort of curriculum, the whole manner and message that he taught them was him, himself, who he was and what he was about. In fact, the phrase, follow me, kind of gives us a hint until this program that Jesus was undertaking. There's no verb in the Greek. It's just a preposition. It says, hey, you, get behind me. That's Jesus' point. He wants them to literally locate themselves back behind him, which is a little strange. You know, we think of following in the abstract sense, like I associate with Jesus or I'm learning from Jesus. No, he literally meant get behind me because, you know, being behind someone gives you the best vantage point to observe who they are and what they're about. They're going to watch him. They're going to go where he goes. They're going to see the way he interacts with other people. They're going to pattern their whole life on him. That's what he meant when he said, follow me. He's not talking about some loose affiliation or acquaintance with some random set of abstract facts. He's talking about the deepest imaginable relationship a person could have. To follow them. To pattern their life on him. Later, a few years later, Jesus' disciples are going to reflect on this whole concept of following and what that really means, what it looks like. Paul says in Romans 8.29, it, it's not about learning certain things, but it's about actually having our whole lives conformed into his image by the work of his spirit in us. It's not downloading some information into our brains. It's being pressed into a mold. John says that the person who says they live in him ought to walk in the same manner as he walked. The person who says they're a Christian should live the way Jesus lived. No, Jesus calls us to follow him, and that means more than just believing God exists. And being a part of the church is more than just being a part of a civic organization that does some good things in a community. No, when Christ calls people, when Christ calls us, he calls us to fall in line behind him and to go where he goes, and to do what he does. To learn from him, to have our desires replaced by his desires, to make his goals our goals. A person who follows Jesus lives for Jesus. And so that's what he does. He calls us to follow him. And I mean us. You know, a lot of times what I'm trying to do on Sunday mornings is help you really grasp the meaning of a passage. What does this say, and what did it mean to the first people? And I kind of wanted to, when I was making my outline, I wanted to say Jesus called his disciples to follow him. And I wanted to look at it from a third-person perspective, what Jesus did for them. But you know, this calling to follow Jesus doesn't just come to the people who are privileged to live while he was doing ministry on earth. Jesus' call to follow him comes to every person in every generation. It's fresh every time it happens, and it happens every time the gospel's preached and the Spirit is at work. He's always calling people to follow him. Uh, Peter wrote to the second generation of Christians in this way. He said, you're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. 
People Peter's talking to never saw Jesus with their own eyes. They never heard Jesus' own voice. But Peter could say that he had called them out of darkness and into his light. Paul tells the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 2, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this, for sanctification and for your faith, that he called you through our gospel so that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So listen, every time the gospel is preached, Jesus is calling people to follow him. Every time. This wasn't a one-time thing like, wow, isn't it cool what he did for Simon, Andrew, James, and John. Jesus today is calling you. Will you hear his call and follow? Second thing we need to see is that Jesus calls us to join him in his mission. Jesus' purpose in calling Simon, Andrew, James, and John wasn't just to create a group of men who had all the answers. You know, like big-headed theologians who knew all the ins and outs of who Jesus was and what Jesus did. You know, he made it pretty clear what his goal was for each of them. He said, follow me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. He laid it out there, right at the beginning, the goal that he had in mind. They were going to be fishers of men. And that surely made sense to them. They were fishermen. And they had a, probably a visceral, like, deep connection to this image when Jesus threw it out there. He knew what, they knew what he had in mind. They cast the nets out, and they hauled them back in full of fish. And Jesus was going to somehow make it where they cast nets out, and instead of fish, hauled in people. And in the Old Testament, God had promised something like this. He'd said that he was going to bring his people back from exile, and he was going to deal with their sin once and for all, and he was going to do it through fishermen. He said in Jeremiah 16, 16, Behold, I'm sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. So what God has in mind, and the next passage he says is hunters. And men, that's probably one you want to memorize so that here in a couple of months, you leave early one morning, your wife says, where are you going? You say, I'm going to do the Lord's work. I'm going to fish and hunt. I don't know. But <laughs> that's what Jesus was calling Simon, Andrew, James, and John for. They were going to be fishers of men. That, he was going to send them out with nets, and they were going to throw it out into the mass of humanity, and when they hauled it in, they were going to bring people back. They were calling people to repentance, to prepare themselves for the kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus was calling them to join him in his mission. Said last week, he came out of the wilderness preaching the times fulfilled, the kingdom of God's at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And everywhere he went, he preached that message, casting his net and hauling in whatever came back. And I don't know if you've ever seen people fishing with cast nets. Uh, I'm from Mobile, Alabama, and they have this crazy thing called the Jubilee. And apparently at the estuary, there's occasionally a time when certain algae bloom and it causes the oxygen in the water to deplete, and all the fish and shrimp and animals come up to the surface, and people go out with five-gallon buckets and scoop up the fish. At other times of the year, they stand on piers and wade into the water with a giant net, and they hold it in one hand, usually teeth in the other, and they sling it out there, and it goes. Then they pull that string, and the net closes up, and it pulls up whatever was under the net, and they drop it in their bucket. Now, I've watched people do that. I've never tried it. Watch people do that, and it's amazing because you get all kind of a hodgepodge 
of things in a cast net. Anything that's underneath it gets brought up. You might have one type of fish and some shrimp. It's just everything. And that's exactly the way Jesus ministered. Everywhere he went, he cast his net, and he drug up all kinds of stuff, all kinds of people, well-to-do people, disreputable people, women who had sordid pasts, men who were totally self-righteous, and he drew them into the kingdom. That's the way Jesus worked. And occasionally it would get him in trouble because you don't get to pick and choose what comes up in the net. What comes up in the net goes down in the bucket. And so it is what it is. And in Mark 2, some religious leaders got really upset because one day when Jesus cast his net and said, come follow me, he'd said it to a tax collector who was the worst of the worst. And after the tax collector left to follow Jesus, left his tax booth, he invited him to his house. And here Jesus is reclining at this tax collector's table, and the religious people came in there so upset that he dare associate with such riffraff. And Jesus explained his decision. He said, listen, the well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick do. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That's who Jesus is. He's out calling people everywhere he goes, and he called these four men to join him in this mission. He's out there seeking and saving that which is lost. And over the course of three years, he prepares these fishermen to have his eyes, to have his ears, to be sensitive and in tune with what his Spirit's doing. So whenever they go into a city and they're received, they stay and they preach the gospel so that the people who are there come into the kingdom. That's what he was calling these men for, not to be fact-filled theologians, but to be men on mission. Because of that, one commentator says that the relationship Jesus was really after is more like an apprenticeship than anything else. They follow him and observe him. He starts to hand over control and authority, giving them test missions to do it. And then finally, he sets them loose. Jesus calls us to join him in his mission. The world wants you to make your decision to follow Jesus a private thing. Something you do, privacy of your own home. But Jesus' intention from the beginning is that if he calls you to follow him, he's calling you to be public about it. And the longer you follow him, the longer you are behind him observing his way and you read about him in the Bible and you see the way he interacted with difficult people, people who were on the outskirts of society, the more you start to think that maybe there are people around you just like that. And if Jesus were here, and if Jesus was at work today, he'd be talking to those people. And since he's not, he sent you to do it. Shouldn't you extend your call, the call to follow him, your friends and your family? Shouldn't the people who are dying without hope know about eternal life in Jesus? I mean, that's the point. Jesus calls us to join him in his mission. And yeah, he gave it to the first generation of disciples. Y'all better watch out. I feel like I'm getting a little fired up here. He might have given it to the first generation of disciples in Matthew 28, going to all the nations, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything he commanded. But man, that continues on through an unbroken chain to us. It does. Every single one of us are called to join Jesus in his mission. We can't be private about our faith. He's called us to join him in what he's doing in the world. Which means that we probably have some work to do. I mean, it's obvious that Jesus had more in mind for his disciples than what they were prepared for on day one. I mean, he said, I'm going to make you become fishers of men. He didn't, I'm going to automatically make you fishers of men. I'm going to transform you into fishers of men. He said, I'm going to make you become. He had a growth process in store for them. They weren't ready right away. 
But eventually they would be. Their lives would be conformed to Christ in such a way that His desire for the nations became their desire for the nations. And every last one of them died so that people around the world could know the truth about Jesus. You know, maybe God wants that for you. Would you be as privileged to get to graduate high school or college and spend a year overseas taking the gospel to the nations? I'm talking to y'all. Would you be as privileged to join Jesus in his mission by leading a Bible study for your coworkers before the workday begins? Would you be so privileged to leverage your relationship with your grandkids or your kids? your spouse, your neighbors, your friends, distant cousins, twice removed. Leverage it so that they would know what it means to follow Jesus, so they would hear his call fresh, so that every man, woman, and child in Luling, Texas had a chance to make a decision about Jesus, to cut through the fog of war, the uncertainty of incomplete information. Could everybody who lives in a one-mile radius of this church building have a chance to know that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, took on human flesh to live a sinless life and die in their place so they could live with Him forever? Well, maybe He could do that magically with a lightning bolt. But instead, I think He wants to call us to join Him on His mission and send us into the world. That's what He's called us to. So however it works itself out in our life, I can tell you that Jesus calls you to join Him in His mission. This morning, will you hear His call and follow? Before you answer that, let me give you my last point. Following Jesus will cost you. So when Jesus came to Simon and Andrew, James and John, he said, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And had he left it there, that would have been great. You know, I could have preached up to this point and left you on a high note, Robert the Bruce, follow me, man left here, charged out into the world to share the gospel with everybody, but it's only fair that you see what it cost them. Because when they decided to follow Jesus, when they really took his call seriously and they decided that their only option was to obey, it cost them everything. They left behind their livelihoods, they left it behind their families to follow Jesus. It says immediately they left, that's the word that's used twice, they left their nets and followed him. James and John left their father Zebedee with the hired hands in the boat and went away to follow him. You know, it's crazy what it'll cost you to follow Jesus. The choice to follow him for these men, leaving everything else behind. There's a way to explain this away. Um, Next chapter, Jesus is going to go to Simon's mother-in-law's house. And so, However they left, and they're going to ride on boats all the time. You ever thought about that? Where did they get these boats? Well, there were some men among the disciples who owned boats. So they didn't burn their boats or burn bridges. They didn't cut off ties with their family completely. But they did experience a, re, a radical reorientation of their priorities. They were fisher of fish, but now they're fishers of men. It's a change, complete, thoroughgoing change. Their commitment to follow Jesus cost them everything. And following Jesus always does. It always costs you everything. In fact, Jesus casting his net, you know, preaching all the time across Judea and Samaria and Galilee and all these places. And as he's casting the net, he's drawing it back in and people come up and say, yes, this is exactly what I've always wanted. I want to follow you. 
In Luke 9, Luke tells us the story of one of these instances when a man came to him and said, Lord, I want to follow you. Follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And then Jesus said to another, the familiar phrase, Follow me. But that man said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. He said, No, let the dead bury the dead. And as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Join me in my mission. Follow me. He said, I'll follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, No one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now Jesus can be a little unloving. You know, look, come on, that's a little too black and white, Jesus. These men had good intentions. They wanted to follow you. Why couldn't you allow some room, some leeway? Let them do what they got to do so they can follow you. But apparently, those attitudes within us are not conducive to the life of discipleship to which we've been called. When Jesus calls us, it will always cost us. And there's no way to read the gospel without coming to that conclusion. In fact... Jesus finally, in Mark 8, 34, makes it as plain as anyone ever could. He says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's it. Now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is the preacher who was uh, hanged by the Nazis uh, for his resistance. And uh, he said, you know, we normally think of the cross as the ending to our lives. Like, I'm going to be faithful, and then at the end, man, I have to face suffering. He says, no, what really actually happens is that the cross is the beginning of the Christian life. That when Christ calls a person, he bids them come and die. And the problem is this, that yeah, that's true, and that's the way Jesus lived, and that's the way the disciples lived. They'd give up everything to know Christ. But we try to take the gospel message and conform it to our postmodern, therapeutic mindset which tells us that instead of the gospel being a call to die to ourselves, it's an invitation to discover ourselves. I say this sometimes, forgive me. To discover ourselves, to find meaning and purpose in life, like it's the best self-help thing you ever found. But when Jesus called Simon, Andrew, James, and John, he wasn't adding something extra to their life, the cherry on top to their life as fishermen wasn't the Old Bay seasoning for their souls. going to add that extra little something. It's going to help them become the person they always hoped they could be. He called them to leave everything and follow him. Robert Coleman said in his book, The Master Plan of Evangelism, which is great. It's short and sweet. You'd love it. He says, The call to follow Jesus means surrendering our whole life to the Master in absolute submission. Think about that. Surrendering our whole life to the Master. Yeah, Lord, I'll follow you, but I'm going to stay on as a fisherman with my dad. He's getting old and he needs us. No. Leave everything and follow me. And if you think about it, how could it be any other way? If we believe, and I'm talking, I'm not preaching, I'm talking to you. If we believe as a people what Mark has told us in the first three sermons of this series that Jesus is the Messiah promised by the prophets, that he's the Son of God, and that he's the king who's establishing his kingdom. How could we expect anything less than a life of total surrender? Don't we see the song? The things of earth will go strangely dim 
in the light of his glory and grace. Is that a Hallmark card or a cliche? Is that meaningless words? Or is that real? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his, what is it, beautiful face? Wonderful face. Do you do that ever? Do the things of earth grow dim in the light of His glory and grace, or do they still have all the shine and appeal that they always have? I mean, this is life-altering stuff. And then you consider this, like not only is He the Messiah, Son of God, King, that after living a life of faithfulness, He was crucified. Should we think that the Messiah, Son of God, and King would suffer and then He'd give us an easy life? What kind of sense does that make? If the crowning event of Jesus' life was His death on the cross, how do we imagine that our life's going to be easy and not ever going to cost us anything? That's why I think Paul's right in Galatians 2.20 when he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. He'd already made peace with his death. He was already dead. Anything that happened after he came to know Jesus was bonus. And if that meant that he was going to die, it was fine. In fact, I think what he means is that a follower of Jesus is dead to their desires and completely alive to Christ what he wants. Simon, Andrew, James, and John discover it, like first-hand experience. It would be impossible for them to follow Jesus and hang on to those nets. They couldn't drag him with them. They're going to have to leave him behind if they want to follow him, one way or another. And the same is true for us. Jesus cuts through the fog of war. No uncertainty there. You either follow him or you keep hanging on to the world. Like Robert the Bruce, follow me, is what Jesus says to each of us this morning. Will you hear his call and follow? I mean, the truth of it is this, if I could just summarize it in one quick phrase, it'd be, Jesus is calling us to surrender, to follow him by surrendering our lives to join his mission. That's it. Jesus is calling us to follow him by surrendering our lives to join his mission. And the question is, will we? Will we respond to his call like James and John and Simon and Andrew? You know, many of us have been followers of Christ for a very long time. We've been Christians for a very, very long time. But we've never gotten behind him to observe the way he lives We've never adopted the mind of Christ to think as he thinks. We've never acted on the love of Christ, which is supposed to compel us. We've never committed wholeheartedly to discipleship. And as a result, we suffer from what one author says is a general indifference to the commands of God. Or at least, give you some benefit here, at least a kind of contented complacency with mediocrity. Why is it? That I'm not growing in my walk with Christ. How is it that I continue to struggle with the same things year after year? Why is it that when I tell my friends and family about Jesus, they don't listen? 
our vision of the Christian life has been so skewed by a lifetime of disobedience that we've forgotten what it means to follow Jesus. Y'all hear me? Our vision of the Christian life is so small because we've never actually taken up the life that Jesus has called us to live. We've been hanging on to all the other things, the world. And if you don't turn loose of the world, you can't take hold of Jesus. That's why the author of the letter to the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12, he says, Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the glory and joy that was set before him endured the cross, suffered the shame, and sat down on his throne at the right hand of God. That's who we say we serve, the Jesus who ran his race with all that he had until it cost him everything. And that's the life he's calling us to live. And so today, for the first time in a long time, we need to remember what Jesus has called us to. Following Jesus isn't the cherry on top of an otherwise happy life. Following Jesus is everything. And maybe, this morning, you're hearing Jesus' call for the first time. And if so, you've been debating within yourself. You've been having this conversation. Well... I hear what he's saying. I understand that, yeah. And then you start to get to that place where you're like, wait, is he talking about me? Is God calling me? And you've been processing what it would cost you. You've been running through the relationships and the habits and the things you love so much. And that if you really took this seriously and if you were really going to follow Jesus, you'd have to leave all of that behind and you're just not sure if you can. I've been there. And occasionally get there still. And I think, and I look it dead in the face, and I see if this is what Jesus is calling me to, man, it means I have to give up all my stuff. If this is the life that you want me to live, that means I'm going to have to sacrifice my desires, my dreams, my goals. And that's exactly right. You feel like you could never do it, and you wonder if it's even worth it. And you're right. The Bible says that God created us to have perfect friendship with him where He satisfied every single desire we ever have. And we love Him by offering to Him our worshipful obedience. But then the first people who experienced that rebelled against His authority and suffered the punishment for what the Bible calls sin. And because of their sin, you and I inherit a sinful nature. So we add to their rebellion with sin of our own. But God sent Jesus on mission to cast his net, to live a sinless life, fulfill God's loss, die in the place of sinners like me and you, and then after three days in a borrowed tomb, he raised him up again. And here's his promise. Anyone who will repent of their sins and trust him in faith can be saved. And he put it like this. These are his own words. I gave you the first half of this a minute ago. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Okay, all well and good. Mark 8, 34. And that's where you are. If I was going to follow Jesus, it would cost me everything. But then he follows it up and he says, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. This is it. You feel like it's going to cost you everything to follow Jesus, and you're absolutely right. But when you willingly lay down your life and turn to Jesus in faith... You gain so much more than you ever thought possible. Those who will seek to save their life 
will lose it, but those who lose their life for my sake and the gospels will save it. That's his offer. Will you follow? Head with me.